you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, and we'll be in chapter number 6. And in the last few chapters, Hosea has presented God's case against the northern kingdom, against the nation of Israel. And he's also kind of warned Judah that you're not far behind your, your, your brothers in the northern kingdom. And uh, basically, he, he narrowed it down to two main sins that they were engaged in. And one was violence. The land was full of violence. And the other was they had given their heart over to idols. And they had gotten so bad that they had raised up a generation of children who didn't even know the Lord. And, and uh, uh, so uh, they were in a terrible state. And God sent them judgment, if you remember, in four different ways in order to try to turn them back. And I think that's when we looked at that, I think it's kind of a guideline of how God judges a nation and how he judges people in order to turn them to him. You remember the first thing that he does, he gives us prosperity, but what comes with it? Discontentment. I mean, we don't have prosperity with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain, not godliness with prosperity is great gain. God loves to prosper his children, but if you don't take his prosperity in a way that you receive it as a blessing from him and receive it in gratitude, then God will take that prosperity and turn it into discontentment. And no matter what you have, you won't be satisfied. So that's one form of judgment. Then the second form of judgment is kind of a, is, is a slow form of judgment. Remember he spoke of the moss and the, and the decay, uh, the blight. In other words, things that come along and, and waste or, or uh, destroy those material things that we hold so precious to us. God will bring things in that slowly destroy those things. And then if that doesn't get our attention, what was the next judgment that, that he pronounced on the nation of Israel? He was going to send a lion, uh, some terrible natural disaster, some terrible war, some terrible king was going to come up against them and, and destroy them. And that's exactly what happened in, in 6, 721 uh, B.C. Uh, Sargon II came down with his troops and he destroyed Samaria and he took the Israelites captive. But then that wasn't the last judgment. He, the very last judgment is absolutely the very worst judgment. And what was that judgment? And that was that uh, go back to, again, go, go to Hosea. I don't know how I flip pages here, but go back to Hosea and look at chapter 5. And let's look, look at the judgment that he sends upon these people. He says, I will return again to my place. I will return again to my place. In other words, I will leave Israel to their own ways. I will pull back my hedge of protection and I will return again to my own place. Kind of sort of like when he said in chapter four, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave her alone. There comes a point 
where a nation rejects God and rejects God and rejects God and almost spits in the face of God, that God will say, hey, there's nothing I can do for that nation. They're a generation of children who don't even know me. And so I will return to my place and I will leave them alone. Now, the good news is the next part of verse 15 says till. There was a till there. Thank goodness there was a till. He didn't say I'll leave them alone forever. He never leaves anyone alone forever. I mean, God's heart is, we saw that in 2 Peter on Sunday. He wishes that none should perish, that all should come to eternal life. So, so he says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. What was it going to take for them to acknowledge their offense? They were going to have to realize that what was their main offense? It was idolatry. What were they going to have to realize? That their idols couldn't save them. Things were going to have to get so bad that they had to realize that, that there wasn't any contentment in their material things. Their material things were just wasting away from decay and moss and, and blight. And that their idols who they had worshipped had no power to help them or to save them. And they had to come to that point. And the only way they were going to come to that point was to get in a really bad place. And they were basically wiped out when the Assyrians came down in 721. And there wasn't much left of them. And you don't hear anything of the northern kingdom again until when? Until the great tribulation. Then God will begin to work with both the northern and southern kingdom. And he will... Uh, time, he will use the time of Jacob's trouble. And at, during that time, they will acknowledge their offense. And really their greatest offense was what? What was the greatest offense the Israelites committed? When they crucified the Lord. And at some point, they're going to acknowledge that offense. And they will seek my face. Not just seek God. They will seek my face. Whose face is that? The face of the Lord. The face of Jesus Christ. And, but it will be in their affliction that they will truly repent and earnestly seek me. You know, it's sad that God has to send a line. It's sad that God has to turn his back on his people. But at some point, that's what it takes to get people to earnestly seek God. Now, that day comes though. One day that day is going to come. And, he, he, that's, and this is going to be the heart of the people in that day. Look at chapter 6, verse number 1. They say, and this is Israelite speaking, after they're, after they're in their affliction, they're going to earnestly seek the Lord. And this is what they're going to say. Come and let us return to the Lord for he has torn us, torn us like a lion, but he will heal us. He has stricken us, but he will bind us up. Actually, verses one through three are a great prophecy about the day that's coming soon Will, when Israel will truly repent and they will truly turn to the Lord. Now, some people say that that's happening now. It's not happening now. They're not truly turned to the Lord. Israel, for the most part, is a secular nation. Don't fool yourself. I mean, I love Israel. They're the apple of God's eye. I certainly believe that God has still got a plan for Israel. That's what we're looking at right here. So we know he's got a plan for Israel. But that has not been consummated yet. It, they won't, their heart won't be this way until they see the face of the Lord and they look on him and they pierced and they will mourn as a son mourns for their only, as a mother mourns for her, their, her, her only son. 
but it's going to it's going to come through a lot of trouble. Let's let's turn to that passage for a minute. Go go with me over to because it's going to be pertinent to what we look at in the rest of chapter six. Go over to the next to last book in the Old Testament, Zechariah. And and you got to be careful with the chronology here, but but I'm going to I'm going to do it in reverse so we get it in the correct chronology. But but look at chapter 14. Start in chapter 14 first. We'll be coming back to Zechariah not too long from now. We'll look at this in a lot more detail. And I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff, but 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 you're going to see how this applies to the rest of this test, text here in a few minutes. But look in chapter number 14 down at verse Number three, and he's talking about the day of Armageddon. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. That, that, that matches up with chapter 19 of Revelation. As he fights in the day of battle, the battle of Armageddon. And in that day, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives will split in half. What day is that? That's at the end of the great tribulation when the Lord comes to save the world, not just Israel, but the entire world. And he comes to set up his millennial kingdom. So that's the very beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now back up to verse chapter 12 and look down at verse number 10. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. I mean, chapter 12, verse 10. And supplication, then they will look on me. I, I like the, look at the pronoun there, me. Who's speaking? The Lord speaking. Who's pierced? The Lord. They will look on me whom they pierced. Now we know what he's talking about when he talks about the piercing. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. They will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, and yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In other words, the Lord is going to land on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split in two. And the nation's going to look upon his face and they're going to realize who, who's the Lord landing there? Jesus Christ. And they're going to realize that the Messiah whom they pierced, who came 2,000 years earlier, is the Lord. And they will grieve. But what has to happen? I want you to notice here in verse number 10, what has to happen first? What happens before they realize this? Do they just say, do they just figure it out in their, in their, with their human intellects? What has to happen? It's got to be revival. There's got to be a great revival for that whole nation to understand what's happening there. And, and you see the revival in verse number 10? I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. So there's coming a great revival in Israel, but when is it coming? It's coming at the end of the great tribulation. So keep that date in mind because we're going to try to figure out some stuff here in a minute. There's a great prophecy here that I think we can figure out if we, if we keep all of that in mind. So he says, come and let us return to the Lord for he is torn and he has healed us. He is stricken and he will bind us up. In other words, in that day when, there's, when the spirit is poured out on them, and they understand, they understand, looking back at, let's go back to Hosea. The 
They look at verse number 15. They will acknowledge their offense. They will understand that they crucified the Lord. They will understand that they went into captivity because they rejected the Lord and went after idols. Then they're going to, in that day of that revival, they will seek my face. And in their affliction, in the great affliction, the great tribulation, they will earnestly seek me. You know, y'all follow me there. And then they will say, come and let us return to the Lord because they'll have the spirit of God on them. And for he is torn, but he will heal us and he is stricken, but he will bind us up. Now, when's that revival going to come? That's what's really interesting. Can we figure that out? When's that revival going to come? Because if I can figure out when the revival's going to come, I can figure out when the Lord's going to come. Because the revival coincides with the coming of the Lord. So when's it going to come? He tells us. He tells us in the very next verse in a very cryptic way. After two days, he will revive us. There's the revival. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up as a a nation again. You remember back in chapter one of Hosea, he said, I will raise you up as a nation in the last latter days. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will be one nation. That's what he's talking about right here. So after two days, there will be a revival and he will raise Israel up. Well, we got to go back to 721 B.C. That's when they went into captivity. I don't know the exact day. But I can look at the calendar in 721 and I can find anywhere on the calendar and I can go two days forward and I don't see them being revived. And I don't see them being raised back up. Now I say all of that because I'm, a, I'm very big on interpreting the Bible literally. Literally. Unless you can prove by context it should be interpreted otherwise. Well, we can prove by context that this is not a literal Two days. Normally, when you see the word yom, the Hebrew word for day, it is a literal 24-hour day. Those people who believe in the gap theory love to come to this passage and say, no, it doesn't always mean a day. The gap theory is a theory that says that God created, you know, started the creation, then there was a gap of millions and billions of years, and then he finished it. And we're using evolution and all of that kind of stuff. And there's all sorts of gap theories. But that, that, they say, you know, you can't take it literally. He meant a period of time. But that's not the case. Most of the time when in the Bible, when the word yom is used, when the day is used, it means a 24-hour day. Well, just to make sure you know that in Genesis, what does he say? And the morning and the evening were the first day. So that day there is a literal 24-hour day. But it's not a literal 24-hour day here. It's not a literal 24-hour day. It is a period of time that's not given to us. But we got a little bit of a hint over in 2 Peter on Sunday, didn't we? When, when Peter said, one day to the Lord is as a thousand years, as a thousand years as a one day. And I said, that's not God times. And you, you could have said 10,000 years. But I would at least try to apply that 1,000 there. 
And, and, and let's, let's put thousand in there. After 2,000 years, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. Now, you could look at this another way. You could look at it as literally three days. In what context? In the context that Jesus Christ was crucified, he was buried for two days, and he was raised on the third day. And that's their hope. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think that's, that's a picture, that's part of the picture. But he says after two days. Well, after two days, after what two days? After, let's say it's a thousand years. After what two thousand years? Well, it's not two thousand years after they went into captivity. Uh, or we'd be, you know, out in the middle of nowhere as far as time goes. If you went from 721 B.C., two thousand years forward, you know, that isn't when they were revived as a nation. That, that won't work. On the third day, they weren't revived. So after what? After what? I believe it refers, if, if you go the third year, on the third day they're raised up, what does that represent? That represents the millennium, the thousand years millennium. So you go back 2,000 years before that, and what do you have? Well, we don't know for sure. If, if that's accurate, we're there. If you go back 2,000 years and the event that he's speaking of here is either maybe the birth or death of Jesus Christ, maybe the death of Jesus Christ, we're right on the cusp of hitting that 2,000 years. I believe this is a prophecy of, that does speak of 2,000 years either after, it can't be the, the birth because we've passed that, but maybe after the death of Jesus Christ, and on the third day, Israel will be raised up. If that's the case, guys, i got to tell you, and I'm, I'm not trying to predict dates here, but we are right there. We are right at the point where the Lord returns to the Mount of Olives. But before all that happens, what happens? He comes and gets the church. He comes and gets us. And Roy won't have to look for another job. He won't want another job. He'll come and he'll get us. And with all these prayer requests, we won't have to worry about any of these things. Now, and, and then the great tribulation takes place. The Lord returns and Israel enters the age of the millennial kingdom on earth where Israel has that land back, all the land back that they were promised. And uh, Jesus Christ rules there, maybe with David. And I think Jesus Christ rules the world, well, in my opinion, and David rules Israel. And we go into the millennial kingdom. Sounds like pie in the sky, doesn't it? But it's not. And we are right there if that prophecy is, is if that's what that prophecy means. And I, I challenge you to find, fit something else. Try to find something else that, it, that, that fits. You can't. Uh, and, and so... That also matches up with what I talked about Sunday. When you go back and you, you look at the creation of the world and you go 6,000 years, you would go to also to that same time period before you went into the millennial rest. And I have no doubt that that's, we're going to do 6,000 years and then we're going to go into the millennial rest. The, the, the key is, are those, where do those 2,000 years start? Where do they, you know, at what, are we talking about the death of Christ? Uh, are our calendars right? You know, I me mean, only God knows. But all I, I know we're very, very, very close 
You'd never know that by watching the news, though, would you? Huh. You, just, you watch the news and read your Bible. When we get into Revelation, you'll see. We'll go look at Ezekiel and some of those things and Daniel and tie all those things and all of that discourse and try to tie all of those things together. And all of the things, events that are talked about in the last days, they're lining up right now. So it's, it's pretty exciting, pretty exciting times to be living in. Now, where was I at? Let's go back to, so he says, after two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise, raise us up that we may live in his sight. Israel's always in God's sight. You're always in God's sight. Even if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, you're in God's sight. But he's talking about like the sight of a father looking out over his child. That's the kind of sight. He's talking about in a relationship where you, you never lose sight of your children. You watch over your children all the time. That's what he's talking about. Israel will be back in that relationship with the Lord, which they don't have right now, but that's coming really soon. We have it because we're the new Israel. We, we, we have, we're the church. And the new Israel hasn't replaced the old Israel. Don't buy, that's not in the Bible. You can't find it in the Bible. And you've got to cheat to get it to say that. But we are the new Israel. We are the spiritual Israel. We do have, and there are Jews who are part of the new Israel. And God, we're in God, isn't it a great thing to know you're in God's sight? He's watching over you at, 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 when you're looking for a home or you're looking for a job or you, whatever's going on in your life and your house is flooded and whatever, whatever is taking place, he's, he's right there and he's going to make things good in his time. We know that. He says, he said, let us know him. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord, not not facts about the Lord. You know, in that day, they knew all sorts of facts about the Lord. They still went through exercises where they worshiped Yahweh. They had just twisted Yahweh into a God of their own making. Much like we've done in the United States of America today. We've twisted Yahweh God into a God of our own making. He's a God of love, but he's not a God of judgment. He's changed. He, things that used to be an abomination to him aren't an abomination to him anymore because we've decided they aren't an abomination to him. He's never said they're not an abomination to him. But we've decided that. So what are we doing when we do that? We're making God into a God of our own choosing, our own making. And that is idolatry. And that's exactly what they were doing to the point where they, they made Jehovah God into a little cab that they carried around. Or, or in a little wooden statue. And they were told in the very beginning of the Ten Commandments that they weren't supposed to make any images of God because you can't make an image of Jehovah God. God is spirit. God visibly is Jesus Christ. But they, in that day, he said, everyone will say, let us know the Lord. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Let's really get to know the Lord. You know, if you're a born again believer, that should be your heart. If you have the spirit of God in you, you should, every, every waking day should be, you know, I want to get to know the Lord more. I want to, as we're going to see in 2 Peter, I want to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's my goal for today, to grow in him. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. Let's seek him. And if you seek him, what's going to happen? You're going to find him. And 
It says in the last part of the verse, and he will come to us. You seek him, you're going to find him. He will come to us like the rain. Now, this isn't something that guarantees some revival in the last days. And I don't know where people interpolate that. There might be a revival in the last day, and I hope there is. But this passage is that's not what it's saying at all. Who is it speaking of? It's speaking of the nation of Israel. In the latter days, they're going to seek the Lord. And he will come to them like the rain, like the latter and the former rain. When did the Lord come to Israel? He came to Israel when he came to Abraham, didn't he? That would be a former rain. When, when, they, when God sent Moses to Israel and they were in captivity in Egypt, he came to them and he rained his presence down upon them. I mean, he came to them in, in the former days. And, the, and that's the way it's going to be in the latter days. He's going to come to that nation like he did when he came to them in the days of Moses. He's going to come to them in, in all his might and all his power, and they're going to see his face and they're going to worship Jesus Christ as God. That's going to be the latter days. And it's going to be like the former days in their glory days when they had the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory present with them and the angel of the Lord marched with them. Who was the angel of the Lord? Jesus Christ. And so they're going to have that glory they had in the former days. But it wasn't going to happen then. It wasn't going to happen after they went into captivity. It wasn't going to happen after some of the remnant went back into the land. They weren't going to have that glory again. I mean, Jesus came into his own, and they, his own what? Received him not. There was no, they didn't receive his glory. And so it's, that's, that's, it's, it, it wasn't going to happen then. And, 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 and now they've got a generation of, of children that don't even know the Lord and and God says, listen to the heart of God in verse number four. O Ephraim, O, o northern kingdom. That was Ephraim, the big tribe. O Ephraim, what shall I do? What shall I do to you now? What can I do to get you to repent? You know, there's one thing. Well, Maybe you can come up with two or three, depending on how you look at it theologically. But one thing that God can't do or won't do is make choices for you. He gives man a choice. And he sent him the, the blight. He sent him the line. He turned his back on him, and they still didn't turn to the Lord. And he says in his heart, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? What can I do? To save you, there's nothing I can do. It, well, it can't happen now to the latter days when I pour out my spirit on you. you, you you're not going to be saved. And oh, Judah, you know, you're going down the same path. He might say that, oh, America, what can I do for you? God is not going to make our choices for us. He's going he's to try to get us to say, uncle, He's going he's gonna to send the, the discontentment with the prosperity. He's going to send the blight. He's going to send the moths that eat up our, our goods. He's going he's to send a, a, a disaster. He's going to do those things. And if they don't work, what can I do, the Lord says. You know, the, when we get in the book of Amos, 
We're going to see a spot where God says, I sent you blight. I sent you discontentment. I sent you the disasters. And you wouldn't hear. And now I'm turning my back on you. I tell you what, it's probably, the, it's probably, you know, I hate to see disasters, but at least when God, we're seeing disasters, God's still trying to get our attention. That's, that's the good news about disasters. I hate that some people, good people have to be affected by those disasters. If there's such a thing as good people. But God is, God is always trying, God, I mean, God is still hopefully trying to get this nation's attention. O Ephraim, what shall I do for you? O Judah, what shall I do for your faithfulness? Your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. Faith to God is everything. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The just shall live by faith. You should have faith in God. Faith, faithfulness means, it, it doesn't just mean believing in facts. It means putting your trust in the Lord and and, and being faithful to the Lord. He's faithful when we're unfaithful, but we're to be faithful unto the Lord. He says, you're faithful is like a morning cloud. Just like an early dew, it goes away. You ever see a morning cloud? A morning cloud can be a beautiful thing. A morning dew can be a, be a beautiful thing. But then the heat comes and the cloud dissipates and the dew dissipates and it's gone. And, and, and your, your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. I mean, when, you remember when God took the nation out of, out of Egypt and he took them across the Red Sea. Remember how faithful they were? They were singing all these praises to God. Their faith was just as strong as it possibly could be. And then you give them a few weeks with, 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 with a lack, you know, not enough water, not enough bread, and they're cursing God. Their faithfulness was like a morning cloud, it was like a morning dew. God took them over to the promised land and they had all of these great victories. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he was trying to teach them these lessons. And they went into the promised land and, and they were praising God and they were getting all of these great victories. And then you go just a few decades later into the book of Judges and where's their faithfulness? It's gone. It's like a morning cloud or the morning dew. You know, it's like a it's like a person who comes to church and gets all excited about church and all excited about the word of God. And then and then the cares of the world choke out the word or the devil comes along and snatches it away. And, and, and it never takes root. They're like a morning cloud or a or a morning dew. It just goes away. Therefore, I have cut them, honed them, cut them by the prophets. I have slain them with words. These are some harsh words. You know, whenever you get into minor prophets, you get into some really harsh words. Very cutting words. Very blunt words. You know, I was talking to my... Uh, brother last night about pastor of a really large church in, in Houston and, and they're trying to overthrow him. The, the elders are trying to kick him out of the church even though he founded the church and started the church because they say he's too harsh. He teaches that he teaches, he teaches that our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ 
And people consider that as harsh, harsh and blunt. You know, that, that when he says that, that maybe America is, is addicted to all sorts of medicines to, to instead of facing depression and trying to go to the Lord and work out their depression, maybe, you know, you know certainly there's, there's medical, uh, biological reasons for taking medicines, and I'm not saying that either, but, but we live in a nation where, man, you just medicate everything and you, you, you go to doctors for everything, and you go to psychologists for everything, and, and nobody founds their sufficiency in the Lord. And so you get up and preach that, it's not very popular. It cuts. It cuts and people don't want to hear it. You teach through 2 Peter. Remember I was talking about 2 Peter. I mean, you preach, and Hosea is no different. I mean, you teach through the minor prophets, it's going to cut. But it's good. It's good to have your heart cut and softened and, and circumcised. That's what happens with the Word of God. But a lot of people don't want to hear that. And, and so... Uh, but God says, hey, I don't care if you want to hear it or not. I've, I've cut you by the prophets. I've, I've slain you with the words of their mouth. And what they say, their judgments are as light. That's light. What you're calling darkness, this dark old prophet, this dark old preacher, is light. It's light that will save your soul. I'll tell you what, you listen to Jesus. Jesus didn't miss many words. Tell you what, he wouldn't have won. He, actually, I don't think he won a many popularity contests. He, he, his harsh words got him crucified. His blunt words. I mean, great news. Great news. I mean, the Bible is about great news, but, but it's also about living righteously before God and finding the way to live righteously before God. And if you cut that part out of it and just say God is love and he loves everybody and everybody's going to heaven, it doesn't matter, you know, who they worship or what they do, they're all, everybody's going to make it to heaven one day. You, you tell people that's not the case and they'll say you're harsh. But it should cut. That's what was happening in their day. These prophets, I mean, Hosea was telling it like it was. I don't think he relished telling it like it was. But the words that he was saying were light. You know, and, and, and when religion becomes anything else but the truth going out and people being changed by the truth, if it becomes anything else, it sickens God. It sickens his heart. Sickens him. It hurts him. Because listen to what he says next. Next he says, for I desire mercy and not your religion. Sacrifice. Not that sacrifices weren't important. They were an integral part of the religious system. But more than sacrifices, I desire mercy and knowledge, a relationship with God more than burnt offerings. A true knowledge of God more than you just going through some religious ritual. In those days, even as I say, even though they were given over to idols, they still were, were following some of the prescriptions given to them about religious activities. And they were going through the rituals, but it was nothing more to them than a ritual. And God says, I don't want your religion. What I want is your heart. I want mercy. I want you to show mercy to others because when you show mercy to others, what are you doing? You're, you're showing that you love God. But 
like men, they transgress the covenant. He's talking about the old covenant there, but you can transgress the new covenant the same way. They trust the old covenant because the old covenant, if you remember, began with what? With the, your, your relationship with God, knowing God, knowing God not through idols and not through vain, vanity, but knowing God through a true relationship with God. That's what the first commandments are all about. And then the rest of the commandments are about what? About showing mercy to one another. Showing love to God by showing mercy to one another. And so God says, that's what I want you to do. I, I, more than I want your religion. I want you to show love. I want you to love me, is what the Lord is saying. You know, Saul is one of the scariest characters in the Bible to me because I, I think everybody has a little Saul in them. I think we all have a little Judas in us. We all have a little Barney Fife in us. I can give you a list of things. That's why Barney Fife's so funny to me because I can see a little George in Barney Fife. And I can see a little Judas in myself and a little Saul in myself. But you remember what Saul did. On, on several occasions, God told him to do something specifically and, and, and what Saul would do, instead of doing it, he would disobey. And then he would go through some religious routine to try to win over the heart of God. He was told to kill the Amalekites and kill the king and kill all of their livestock. And he saved the choice livestock for himself and he saved the king for himself. And then when Samuel said, what's this bleeding I hear in my ears of the sheep? You remember what he said? He said, oh, I got saved all of that. To, he lying. I saved all of that to give it unto the Lord. It'd be like somebody stealing and say, I stole all that to give it unto the Lord. The Lord said, I don't want your stuff. I want your honesty, your integrity. And he told Saul, you know, I don't want your, your sacrifices. I desire obedience more than I desire sacrifice. I desire mercy more than I desire religious activities. I desire you love one another more than I desire you go to church. Going to church is a good thing. Studying the Bible is a good thing. Praying is a good thing. But it's worthless if you're not in a relationship with God and you're not treating others the way you should. Now he repeats some of the charges here as we finish up against Israel. He says, Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, it's full of violence, it's full of theft and robbery. So a company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. They murder with their words. They murder hearts and they murder on their way to do their religious activities in Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is harlotry in Ephraim. Ephraim is given over to idols. Let her alone. She is defiled. I tell you what, you, you could tell when a nation's going down the tubes, when the pastors and priests, the pastors, the religious leaders start going down the tubes with a nation. You know it's going down fast. Then in verse number 11, the last verse there, it says, And alas, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you.
when I return the captives of my people. Now, the wording there is a little tricky in the Hebrew. Let me tell you what he's saying there. You know the biblical adage, what you sow is what you reap. In Hosea chapter 8, Hosea, the Lord says to the nation of Israel, you have sown to the wind and you will reap a whirlwind of evil. You've sown evil, you're going to reap evil upon yourself. And that's what he's saying to Judah too. Judah, don't, don't be licking your chops thinking to hear their, Israel's getting what they deserve because a la- also, oh Judah, a harvest is appointed for you. You're going to sow what you've been reaping too. You've been sowing to the wind and you're going to reap a whirlwind and theirs was just as bad as the, the whirlwind that came upon the, the northern kingdom. But there will be a day and here's where he ends here. There will be a day, and the prophet always ends with this hope. When the Lord says, I will return the captives of my people, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will go back into that land and they will be God's people. And I've got news for you. That day is pretty much here. It is pretty much here. So get ready. The Lord is coming soon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and this great prophecy here. And Lord, I know you don't want us to be date setters and you don't want to sit around, want us sitting around and, and just waiting for your return, Lord. You want us to be about your business when you come. And that's the exhortation in this text, Lord, that, that, that we won't be like the people of Israel, joined to the idols of this world, to the idols that have permeated the United States of America. Lord, that we'll come out and be separate and be about your business, and your business is saving lost souls. Lord, give us those opportunities in these last days and keep us busy and keep us looking up. Lord, because our redemption draweth nigh. We just thank you for the redemption that we have. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.